0: and uh, lord we we come to you now and father we we've heard it already that unless you bless lord what can we do lord hearts remain the same and yet lord we thank you that because of the finished work of christ lord you desire eagerly and delightedly to bless your people father we pray lord that we as your people god that we would be humble that through the spirit's power lord that we would have our hearts melted again by the person and work of christ lord that we would be a people who tremble at your word and father that ultimately god that our hearts would give praise and honor and glory to the only one who is worthy of it all and that is you your son jesus christ we thank you so much lord for who he is for all that he has done I just pray, Lord, that he would fill our minds, fill our hearts, Lord, and change and transform us by the power of his glory. We thank you again, and we love you, and we praise you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. I wanna start by asking you a question, and it is a philosophical question, it's a big question, but what is the meaning of life? And maybe more personally and practically, why do you exist what is it that motivates you every morning to get up and to do what it is that you do or to fulfill the calling that god has given to you that question has been asked throughout history from everyone a to z from philosophers to scientists to theologians even musicians have put their own spin on it in lyrics like the song Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, you know the song? If you don't know it, you're young. But if you know it, you're a little older. But the song ends with the phrase, nothing really matters, anyone can see. Nothing really matters, nothing really matters to me. Anyway the wind blows. The Beatles wrote another song called Nowhere Man, He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. I think these songs have merely echoed what Solomon wrote about as he wrestled with the very same question, what is the meaning of life? In Ecclesiastes 12.8, he said, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And what Solomon meant by saying that is that a life that is lived apart from God at the center of life is all vanity. For many people living here in the United States, I think the meaning of life could be summed up in that hit Milton Bradley board game. You remember this one called the game of life? How many remember the game of life? Remember this? Maybe some of you still have it. You start out by graduating from college. You get a job, then you get married, and you have these little kids they are blue or pink, boy, girl, and then throughout life you're making choices. You're taking risks or you're playing it safe, and then you reach the end of life, and what's the point of that game? Who wins the game of life? And according to Milton Bradley, the winner of the game of life is the person who dies with the most money. I want to ask you, is that really what life is all about? that the person who lives and dies with the most money, the most toys, the most fame, the most power, is that person the winner of life? Is this what life is all about? Is this short vapor of a life merely about maximizing worldly pleasures and possessions and power? You see, Solomon had it right that a life lived apart from Christ, God, at the center of life is vanity. It's empty. It's total futility. And let's make this personal. Let me ask you and myself this morning, what are you living for? What motivates you when you get up in the morning? What is the fuel that fuels your career and your parenting and your hobbies? Who or what is at the center of your life? This morning, I just have one prayer and one hope and one goal from this text, and it's this, that for every single one of us here, I pray that we would all be absolutely convinced To live for Christ is the best life that you could ever live. Why? Because Christ is better. He's better. That knowing and loving and living for Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. And I yearn for this in my own life. I'm hungry To be a man who knows and loves and lives for Christ more and more. And I want Paul to kind of open up his heart for us in the book of Philippians. And if you have your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 1. And here we get a glimpse into the heart of a man who lived his life fully convinced that Christ is better. He founded the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey in Acts 16. He led the first convert in Europe to Christ, a woman by the name of Lydia. Others got saved, and in God's grace, a church was formed there. And the Philippians were near and dear to Paul's heart. They were a very close church. This letter is a letter of friendship. It's filled with tender affection. And after Paul's third missionary journey, he is imprisoned in Rome. And from there, he writes this letter to the church of Philippi. And he's contemplating his future. He's not sure whether he's going to live or die. He's in a Roman prison. They could execute him at any time on a whim. And so he writes in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What is he saying? He's saying that whether he lives or whether he dies at the hands of the executioners of Rome, he has one desire, and that's that Christ would be greatly esteemed. Paul is saying, if I live, I've got one desire. I want Christ to be glorified in my living. And if I die, I have one desire. I want Christ to be glorified in my dying. And I read that and I ask the question, what goes on inside the soul of a believer who looks at life like this? What goes on in the heart of a child of God who just wants to live and to die to prove one point in his life? And that that is Christ is better. He's worth living for and he's worth dying for. And so Paul makes two points. And look at the first. He says to live is Christ. Look at verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Here he gives the reason for why he yearns for Christ to be exalted in his life. And he says to live. This is what living is all about. For the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ. What does that mean? To live is Christ. It means that the foundation, the purpose, the meaning, the direction of Paul's life, is all about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate reason for why Paul lives. He lives for Christ. Why, Paul? Why why do you live for Jesus? I mean, this can make Christians, even in the church, a bit uncomfortable. I mean, Paul, why Jesus and not You know, why not expend a little bit of your energy pursuing fortune and fame? Paul, why Jesus and not this problem-free, stress-free life? Why Jesus and not someone or something else? Paul, why why are you so radical about your faith? Why, Why are you saying to live is Christ? He's just everything for me. And from Paul's perspective, which is the Bible's perspective, which is the divine perspective, Jesus Christ is the greatest person and passion in all of life. I think if Paul were living here in 21st century Western uh, world, the Western world, he would probably tell you and me, Guys, this is a no-brainer. Like, why wouldn't you live for Christ? (laughs) He would be shocked and astounded. I mean, why wouldn't you live your life for the greatest person in the universe? And this is how Paul viewed his Lord. Philippians 3, 8, more than that, what did he say? I count all things to be lost in view. And then, key phrase, in view of The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why is that knowledge of surpassing value? It's because Christ is surpassing value. And therefore, to know someone who is of surpassing value, that knowledge is of surpassing value. Paul viewed Jesus Christ as preeminent, that he is worth, that his person is of surpassing greatness and surpassing excellency, which is why when Paul considers Christ and his vapor of a life, he's thinking, you know what? The loss of all things is fine so long as I can know Christ. When he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, he's not saying that the Christian life is this dutiful existence where he has suffered so much. No, living for Christ was a thrilling joy for Paul. And it was the preeminency and the supremacy of Christ that led him to live passionately for Christ. just want to pose... A question for you this morning. Don't think about anyone else. Just think about your heart, your relationship laid bare before God. But right now, as you ponder the person of Christ, just ask yourself, what's going on in my heart? Like, What's happening with your desires and your affections for Him? Is there a sense of deep humility before the Lord because you know what He has saved you from? Is there this sincere sense of gratitude that He saved you by grace, ill-deserving rebels like us? Is there a rejoicing that you know Him? Are you filled with passions and praise for Christ. Or if you're honest with yourself, I mean, it's just you and the Lord. Based on that question, as you evaluate your heart, are there no affections for Him? Is there some kind of like ho-hum boredom with Jesus? Yeah, intellectually, Jesus is to be everything, but... Man, I really wish I could have this, or I really wish I could experience this, or this is what really captivates my heart this morning. Paul is no fool. He's taken the greatest person in the entire universe, and he's just prioritized his entire life around him. Biblically speaking, a fool is someone who does the opposite. Jesus said in Luke 12, 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? The fool is someone who pushes Christ to the fringes of life and says, well, this is what I'm going to live for, going to live for this more than I live for Christ. But the believer, the genuine believer knows the true value of Christ and responds appropriately to who he is. They see Christ as that treasure, that pearl of great price. And this is why Paul lived this way for Christ. To Paul, Jesus was better than anyone or anything in life. But look at the second reason for his passion. He says, point number two, to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Some critics have blamed Paul And accused him of saying, well, of course, that makes sense. I mean, here you are, you go into cities and you get beaten and persecuted and you have a miserable, hard life. Of course, to die is gain. I mean, who wouldn't want to be freed from earth's burdens of suffering if that's your life? And that's the logic of suicide. It's just better than the hellish life I'm having to live right now. But that wasn't the reason why Paul considered death as gain, why he preferred death over life. Paul knew clearly, he was told by the Lord Jesus Christ when he was called into the gospel ministry that his life would be filled with suffering. Acts 9, 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul, even in Philippians 3.10, longed to share in the sufferings of Christ. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Sure, Paul suffered much for Christ, but finding relief from his suffering wasn't the great motivation for why he preferred death. That's not why he's saying to die is gain. No, to die is what? It's gain, it's getting something that's better, not just escaping what is bad. And as Paul contemplated his life, he raised this hypothetical question. If I could choose right now between living and dying, which would I choose? And I ask you, which would you choose? You could just keep living? or if you die and be home with the Lord, which would you choose? And that was a difficult question because Paul loved seeing the name of Christ spreading to distant lands and in different cities, and he loved the glory of Christ and the gospel. And he says in verse 22, if I am to live on in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But if given the choice Look what he says in verse 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Why? For that is very much better. In Paul's heart, there was this passionate desire just to be with Jesus Christ. It would give him permanent access, perfect fellowship with Christ. And he says that being with Jesus in his presence is not just a little better, but no, he says it's very much better. The highest language, the highest superlative in the Greek language, it is to the greatest degree more than great. No comparison in Paul's mind. That being with Christ is so vastly better than being here on earth. Paul's great motivation for heaven was simply that Jesus Christ was in heaven. And because Paul lived with such a passion and a love for his Savior and Lord, that to be in the presence of his master was something that he wanted more than anything, even good things like gospel ministry on this earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Philippians writes, to be with Christ, just to look into his face, that is heaven. Think about that. That one day when we pass from this life, believers are going to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to gaze in the unclouded glory of Jesus Christ. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's eternal bliss. That is what Paul longed for and lived for and then to enjoy perfect communion with him forever without any hindrance, without any interference, without any intermission. All the joy we experience here on earth, though intermittently, will be full and complete when we get to heaven. It will never fade. We will have perfect communion with Christ. And this is why Paul says, if I had a choice, it would be a difficult choice, but I would choose to be with Christ. For that is very much better. My second daughter just was recently sent to the country of India to support the work of a local church. It's been something that she's been longing and praying for, for many years. And I've been to India many times through the years. And every time I've been there, I've left with kind of a sense of relief because India is not an easy place to to be, to visit, to live in there's always a sense of, wow, there's so much noise and there's so many people and it's a different culture and I can't speak the language. And it's crowded and it's loud and noisy and it's polluted and it's like, I just wanna go home. But since my daughter has moved there this past August, something has changed about India. (laughs) Now I want to go to India. I want to go there as frequently and as often as God gives opportunity. Why? Trust me, it's not because of India. It's because there is a precious daughter whom I dearly love who is there. And beloved, in a greater way, the heart of a Christ lover sees dying as gain. Because that's where Jesus is and Jesus is better. You've probably heard this quote by John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. He asked a very penetrating question. It was so helpful when I first read this. It was so convicting. He asked the question, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? What a great question to boil down in our hearts what our lives are really all about. Could you be happy in heaven with all of that if Jesus was missing in heaven? The Christian life is first and foremost a heart filled with love for Christ. That when you become a Christian, that's the first time you obey the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul, your mind, and from this love, what arises? Desires arise, devotion arise, duty and obedience all flow out of this love for Christ. And this morning, if there is no longing for Christ, if you've lost your first love, if you don't have desires to be with him, if you're stubbornly refusing to follow him in obedience, if you lack hunger for his word, and in your heart of hearts, honestly, you're saying, Jesus, you're not better, you're mediocre, but you're not the best thing in my life. Then I ask you, what is keeping you? What is keeping you from seeing and believing the surpassing passing value of Christ. What is it for you? What's standing in the way that's clouding your ability to see the beauty and the majesty and the greatness and the surpassing worth of the greatest person in the universe? Is Jesus better than all your friends at school? Is Jesus better than falling in love and getting married? Is Jesus better? than watching your children grow up? Is Jesus better than professional success? Is Jesus better than a billion dollars? Is he better than the most pleasurable experiences the world could offer right now? Is he better? Because when he's better, when Christ is the passion, the priority of the believer's life, everything else in life falls in place, does it not? Your marriage your outlook, your relationships, your reaction to bosses and problems and parents. It all falls in line with that passion. All the entrapments of the world that keeps our heart from longing for Christ get stripped down and when Jesus is better our hearts are content. Philippians four eleven: not that I speak from want for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. When he's better We start to love people and lay down our lives for people. Why? Because Christ is better and humility is better. And rising up in pride, Philippians 2, 3, and 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. When Christ is better, our circumstances, no matter how hard and difficult and how long we have suffered in those circumstances, we are able to have joy even in the midst of sorrow. Because Philippians 4.4 says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. So how? How do we live for Christ? How do we grow in this passion for the Lord Jesus Christ? Galatians 2.20 Such a helpful verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then what does he say? In the life which I now live in the flesh, in in earthly life, I live what? By faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul simply took this divine revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And Paul didn't take these truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't know if that's really true about Jesus. I I don't really believe everything about him. You know, I've got some doubts, some skepticism about the person of Jesus Christ. No, Paul believed by faith in the Son of God. And so when the Bible says Jesus is Lord, Paul simply said, amen. Willingly submit, surrender my life to the master of the the universe. When the Bible says Jesus is Savior, that he's the one who died so that we can be rescued from all our sins, he wasn't sitting there confused, contradicting that truth, saying, I don't know about all sins. I've done some pretty bad things as a form of blasphemy or persecuting the church. I don't know if you've forgiven me of everything. No, he didn't live with that doubt. He just rested in the finished work of Christ as the Savior, and therefore there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're set securely in the love of Christ, why? Because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not because we've earned that, no, simply because Christ is a merciful Savior. When the Bible says that Jesus is the treasure, the pearl of great price, Paul simply took that truth and he believed it with all his heart. And he saw in the pages of, we see in the pages of Scripture, yes, you are the most valuable, the most worthy person to live for. We live by faith. We walk By faith, we simply take what God has revealed in His precious Word, and we we cling to it with all of our hearts. Say, "I believe this," and when we struggle, we say, "Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief." You see, nothing is better in life than to believe in the One who loved us and gave Himself up for us. Think about that. We've sung about it all morning. We've been reminded through the men who have come up pointing us back to the gospel. That though we, all of us, wicked sinners, deserving of everlasting punishment in the lake of fire, Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our great treasure, what does He do? In love, in grace, in mercy, He comes to the sin-sick world. And He takes on the full weight of our sins. Think about that every single sin that you and I have ever committed, those dark, heinous sins, those arrogant abominations, all that sin, and he took it on himself, and he suffered God's holy wrath and punishment for not some of our sins, but for all our transgressions. And he sets his love upon us so that we, these Foreigners and strangers to the kingdom would be adopted as sons and daughters and be loved and delighted in and cherished for all eternity. Nothing is better than that. Nothing. And so to live for Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let me just close with a true story about a woman Her name is Mabel. It's given by a man named Tom Schmidt, who met Mabel in a state-run convalescent hospital. He writes this. It's an article entitled, The Morphing of Mabel. He says, the state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It is not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek and had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, distorted her jaw, so that what should have been the corner of mouth was the bottom of mouth. As a consequence, she drooled. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this site, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old, that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 20 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway, but I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it and then spoke, and much to my surprise her words, although somewhat garbled, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, I sought the chair, Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That is when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a farm, small farm that she managed with her mother until her mother died and then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker and then the cancer came. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper in hand to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 different directions with all the things that I had to think about, and the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes and so I asked, what, what do you think? about Jesus and she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote she said I think about how good he's been to me he's been awfully good to me in my life you know I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned but I don't care I'd rather have Jesus he's all the world to me And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without Him, I would fall. When I am sad, to Him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, He makes me glad. He's my friend. When Jesus is better, when we have a right perception of who our great king is, and we have a relationship with him by grace through faith, everything in life melts away. Because we know we possess the great treasure, the pearl of great price. My prayer for my life, my wife, my kids, for you, my church, is that we would be a people who live, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are better. Forgive us, forgive me. Times when, out of unbelief, forgetting this most precious truth, and then wandering away from you. Lord, we thank you that you being the best, being our Lord and savior and treasure, being of surpassing worth. Lord, we thank you for all that you are and for all that you have done on behalf of unworthy sinners like us. Lord, we have you and therefore we have everything. And so we thank you for your kindness to rescue us. We thank you you for your patience that endures with us every day. We thank you for your powerful grace that comes through the Word and the Spirit that enables us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people not loitering on our spiritual journey. Father, that we would be those who live this vapor of a life living for Christ and for him alone may our passion may our knowledge may our faith increase all the more in him and we pray Lord that as a result God our greatest desire Lord is that Christ would be exalted we would be just a fragrant aroma emitting Christ to all we meet That people would walk away and say, Jesus Christ is great as a result of your people. And so we just thank you for who you are. Convince us every day through the knowledge of your word that indeed to live is Christ and to die is gain. We love you. We thank you. It's in your son's most precious and holy name. Amen.